You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey, everybody. This is Rebecca Ramirez. And here at Shortwave, we are incredibly excited about NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. Now, today is Friday, December 17th, and the launch was supposed to be next Wednesday, but it's been delayed. And today, NASA should update us on a timeline. Regardless of when it launches, this telescope will be the most powerful ever put into space. It costs about $10 billion, and it should be able to do some really amazing feats. Like see some of the earliest galaxies in the universe, or search the atmospheres of planets beyond our solar system for signs of possible life. Exactly. All of this is assuming, of course, that it doesn't just blow up on the launch pad. Okay, that's NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce with a cheery thought as always. Hi, Nell. Hey, Rebecca. So, Nell, you've been reporting on the James Webb Space Telescope. How do astronomers feel? I mean, this is a huge moment for science. So are they, you know, as cheery as you are, clearly? I was talking to Neil Reed. He's an astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. And I asked him to rank his terror level on a scale of 1 to 10, (laughs) with 10 being maximum terror. And he said it really varied. But at that moment... It's 7 and rising. We'll we'll look forward to watching together in terror, or I will I will watch in terror. <laughs> he says the future of U.S. astronomy is kind of riding on this thing. It really does need to work. Oh my God, those are really high stakes. And the thing that gets me is that this launch is just the beginning, right? Like things have to go really well afterwards, too. Yeah, NASA put out this video called 29 Days on Edge. You know, (laughs) basically, once the telescope is in space, this three-story tall instrument has to basically unfold itself. It'll unfurl a giant sun shield the size of a tennis court. And to me, the whole thing kind of looks like a giant silver and gold ray gun or something. You've got this gold, you know, mirror on top of this silver trampoline kind of thing. It looks like something an evil villain would build and use it to zap a planet or something like that. <laughs> you know, I recently went to see an exact copy of that sun shield, the one they keep on the ground to help them troubleshoot if anything goes wrong. And and I got to say, a ray gun is a very apt descriptor. I'm sure you noticed there is a lot that could go wrong with this thing that they might have to troubleshoot. Oh, completely. And so today on the show, we'll talk about that as well as the astonishing stuff astronomers will see if this new telescope works as planned. You're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. All right. So now remind us who this telescope is named after. Like, who was James Webb? He was a NASA administrator in the 1960s. And usually space telescopes are named after scientists. But another NASA administrator wanted to honor Webb, who was really important for the history of the agency. And, you know, there's been recent controversy over this, with Mm. some saying that James Webb was in power during a period when people were fired from the government for being gay. This is the lavender scare, right? Yeah. And in response to those concerns, 
since NASA did a review this year and said they hadn't turned up any evidence that Webb was directly, personally involved in this. You know, the head of NASA today, Bill Nelson, said he didn't see anything that warranted renaming the telescope. But Mm. some astronomers still say, you know, Webb was leading NASA during that time. And Mm -hmm. the whole thing has not exactly been the kind of coverage that NASA wants its flagship new telescope to get, just as it's finally about to be launched. Yeah. I can totally see that. And when you say finally, you're not kidding. This launch has been a long time coming, right? A long time. A really long time. (laughs) One of the people involved at the start is Garth Illingworth. He's an astronomer at the University of California, Santa Cruz. You know, we started out with a little group of like three people talking about this and sketching concepts on bits of paper and then putting simple things in the rudimentary computers we had back in the 80s. They were working before the Hubble Space Telescope launched in 1990. They figured they'd better get cracking on what would come after Hubble since they knew from Hubble that it would take a long time to build a major new space telescope. Okay, these things take a long time, fair enough. But from 1990 to now is over 30 years now. 30 years! That's longer than I've been alive. Okay, that's kind of a scary thought for me. But Illingworth told me, for a long time, this telescope just had this completely inadequate budget. Like, originally the plan was to try to build it for around, you know, $1.6 billion. It was nowhere near what we wanted. And that haunted the project for eight years. And uh, it caused a lot of political anguish, I would say. He says workers kept running into technical problems and not having the money to deal with them, which led to delays, which further drove up costs. You know, there were headlines like telescope debacle devours NASA funds, Hubble's (laughs) successor is billions of dollars over budget seven years late. Congress started to get sick of NASA coming back year after year and asking for more money for this telescope that never seemed to launch. I mean, can I just say, I'm actually surprised they didn't just kill it like they did with the superconducting super collider way back when. Some lawmakers did try to kill it in 2011, and some members Mm -hmm. of the astronomy community kind of wanted it to die, too. Really? Garth Illingworth told me it got really dicey. There were letter-writing campaigns. We had teachers and schoolchildren writing, saying, you know, this is, Hubble's been amazing. This is our future. We want this mission. In the end, lawmakers made a deal, and NASA sort of hit the reset button with a more realistic schedule and budget. But, I mean, how could they not know from the get-go how much this thing was going to cost? This telescope just involved doing a lot of work that had never been done before. New technologies had to be invented. Mm -hmm. You know, astronomers wanted a telescope that could see faint infrared light from the most distant galaxies in the universe. Mm -hmm. Galaxies that are so far away... The light we see from them has been traveling through space for nearly 14 billion years. Right. And I mean, that's what I find so cool about this. It's like because light takes time to travel, we see these galaxies not as they are now, but as they were when the light started its journey. So this telescope is really going to show us what the universe looked like in the past, very soon after the Big Bang. 
That's right. It's like getting baby pictures of the universe. But (laughs) to see the faint infrared light from these early galaxies, the telescope has to be big. So big, it wouldn't fit into a rocket unless its primary mirror got divided up into segments. Which is technically difficult because the segments will have to be perfectly aligned to work as one giant mirror. And then there's this other thing. The telescope also has to be super, super cold. Right. And that's where that sun shield comes in, the one you went to see outside of L.A. Yeah, I went to this big clean room just outside of Los Angeles where the contractor that built it, Northup Grumman, keeps an exact replica. It looks like a shiny trampoline. There's like five hair-thin layers to it. And it's made of this crinkly material that looks like what Mylar balloons are made of, honestly. What is that sound, Rebecca? You better not have touched the sun shield. <laughs> First rule of the clean room is visitors do not touch the spacecraft I swear, material. I swear I didn't touch it. Come on, Nell. I bet, you know, it was just a tiny sample that they let people touch to get a better sense of it. Like, the whole telescope depends on this seemingly flimsy material. Don't you want to be able to touch a sample? Remind me again how much heat the sunshield has to deal with. Well, the top layer of the sunshield gets hit by sunlight to a tune of a toasty 230 degrees Fahrenheit. And the gaps between the layers of the sunshield let heat dissipate out into space. So the temperature, you know, gradually gets colder and colder down to about minus 394 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, that's pretty cold. Yeah. And this sunshield, its unfurling has to go so slowly and methodically. It takes about three days for the five layers to unfold. They separate so that there's a gap of several inches between each layer. All of this is assuming it unfurls out in space, of course. Wow. Nell, you are always so positive. It's alarming. Well, I want everything to go well. But remember, Hubble turned out to have a huge flaw when it launched. And that telescope only achieved its iconic status because it got fixed by astronauts. Right. I mean, this thing is a million miles away from Earth. It's not like you can just send someone and they just get there and repair it in five minutes. It's just way too far away. That's right. And so their options for repairing glitches are really limited to sort of what they can do remotely. So, you know... They've tested things and they have a lot of contingencies, but it's still a little nerve-wracking. But if it works, it will transform astronomy. Transform it! Some researchers (laughs) have spent their entire careers waiting for this moment. Take Charlotte Mason. She's an astrophysicist at the University of Copenhagen. I started my PhD in 2013 thinking that I would be able to work on James Webb data during my PhD, um, which didn't quite turn out. She studies the early universe, how it began and evolved. What is the history of our universe that brought us to the point where we can sit here and think about it? So what is she most excited about looking at with the James Webb Space Telescope? She says, you know, for her, the holy grail is to find light from the very first galaxy or the very first stars. The odds of that are pretty low, though. And actually, there's maybe more of a chance that we might see one of those stars explode. Which would also be really cool. The first stars spewed out the kind of elements that made up planets and us. You know, those stars changed their surroundings and sort of set the stage for everything that came later. Dude, all of this is so cool. And since you mentioned planets, 
what could this telescope tell us about the planets outside of our solar system? You know, like places where there might be life. There is a huge amount of interest in using this telescope to look at far-off planets, which is kind of funny because when this telescope got started decades ago, scientists didn't know of any planets beyond our solar system. And when they started building it, like they only knew of a few. Now, in recent years, they've discovered so many. There's a list of nearly 5,000 planets. And of course, scientists want to use this powerful telescope to learn more about them. The telescope mostly won't be able to see them, though, right? Like, I know these planets are hardly ever seen directly, and astronomers just infer that they're there by looking at how they block out starlight or how their gravity tugs on stars. Yeah, and that's why it's usually not possible to know what the planets are really like, other than some basic information, like their size and their mass and how far away they orbit. The James Webb Space Telescope should let researchers learn a little bit about planets' atmospheres, by analyzing the starlight that filters through the atmospheres. And what could they learn? Like what gases are there? Mm -hmm. One thing they'll do is look for biosignatures, so combinations of gases that might suggest the presence of life. Hmm. For example, researchers are going to look at one planetary system about 40 light years away, and that one has seven Earth-sized planets orbiting a star. And so astronomers will try to find out, do these planets have air? If so, what kind of air? And so when are we going to start getting information like that? So after liftoff, it takes about two weeks for the telescope to be all unfolded and another couple of weeks to reach its final mm-hmm. spot out in space. There will be months of adjustments to the mirrors to get them all in alignment. Mm-hmm. So the first images should be shared, you know, about six months after launch. Oh, yeah, just six months. No big deal. Well, after waiting 30 years, come on, what's <laughs> another few few months? That's fair. That's fair. I mean, that'll be something to look forward to, I guess, in the new year. So let's, you know, cross our fingers that everything goes without a hitch. And if so, then now we do expect you to come back here in mid-2022 with the news of what James Webb has found. I am so looking forward to it, Rebecca. Have a happy new year. You too. Today's episode was edited by Giselle Grayson, fact-checked by Rasha Aridi, and produced by me, Rebecca Ramirez. And, you know, before I go, I just wanted to give you, our dear listeners, a preview of our next few weeks. Saturday and Sunday, we're going to bring you some early Christmas presents. First, Maria Godoy talking to our colleagues over at LifeKit about how to stay safe during the holidays while Omicron circulates. And then Sunday, we have an excellent interview with Elena Choa, the first Hispanic woman to go to space. That's for my friends at Wisdom from the Top. And then, you know, we figured, why not just keep the joy coming? So in the run-up to Christmas, we're bringing you sci-fi all week long. And then, listen, we'll all need a little room to let the food digest, right? So, leading up to New Year's, the shortwave team is going to be bringing you our favorite episodes ever, with a little insight as to why they're our favorites. So, get excited, and with that, I'll just say thanks as always for listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. (laughs) 